This show is brought to you by Buzzsprout.com, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast. Chapter 16 Sleep Doctor Part 5 An epilogue in November Edinburgh 1979 1 The Three-Tined Fork During the daytime, the avenue was one of tranquility, a residential alcove that gave way to sunsets of everlasting, awe-inspiring kinds. The beautiful thing about it was that it was understated. The avenue was modest and narrow, almost cramped, but the kind of cramp that had a style to it. If you gazed upon it from the front porch of the avenue's number 60, the first thing bound to catch your eye would be a beige stone slabbed patio littered with all kinds of healthy plant life, cordoned off by a sturdily built midnight blue wooden fence. The patio itself was no wider than the descending staircase that led down to number 60's front door, and yet, due to careful planning, also had ample room for a contemplation spot in the northwestern corner. This corner, thanks to the well-built wooden partition, carefully placed ivy plants and a short passage of time, was the perfect place to sit if you didn't want to be noticed by passers-by. People who didn't live there only tended to use the perpendicular east-west road that cut through the avenue's north-south stretch if they knew it was there. And that was the other thing about the avenue. It was avoidable, avertible, ignorable. If you didn't live on the avenue, you didn't really need to know it existed. If you visited it for the first time and then left soon after, finding it again without specific directions from residents would prove tricky. Number 60's patio-bound contemplation spot faced away from the perpendicular road, so whomever rested there could look south down the avenue's main drag. Separating the avenue from the perpendicular road was a cast-iron gate, which, though rusty and old and flaking, provided adequate security for the residents. If you attempted to enter from the perpendicular side, you would find yourself tugging, shoving, and battering the archaic twisted metal handle for a couple of minutes before it finally gave way and the gate creaked loudly open. This meant that no nighttime wanderers from the outside dared attempt anything sinister, since by the time they managed to win against the rusted antique handle, the neighborhood would already be on alert. Neither did they attempt climbing over the cast iron structure for fear of being impaled. The Avenue's number 60 was the first right-hand stop on a fairly underwhelming southbound journey over tiny sharp stones, so small and pitted that they could be referred to as gravel, though certain residents would disagree. The stones had a dry, pinkish hue to them, and the youngest resident of number 60 could swear that every time it rained, they turned a sinister orange-red, reminding the nine-year-old child, ironically, of bright-hot lava particles. The child, Grison, grey for short, had taken to calling the tiny things firestones, and had been content with the name until his father Rick had read in some facts about volcanoes. That they were openings in the Earth's surface, often found at meeting points of tectonic plates. That even the word volcano comes from the Roman name Vulcan, the Roman god of fire. And that as many as 350 million people live in striking range of an active one. That last part was what really got Grison's imagination going on the rainy days of his early ways. Although he couldn't see it from where he was in the city of Edinburgh, he knew that Scotland's capital was home to an inactive volcano known as Arthur's Seat. It hadn't erupted for more than 340 million years, but that didn't stop Grey's imagination. Not least, now he knew the proper name for those tiny firestones. Pyroclasts. Volcanic particles ejected during a volcano's eruption, a word that traveled from Grey's father Rick's lips to his son's ears, and set him dreaming of daring adventure. Pyroclasts was a word he had learned at the age of six, and from that day forward he would play outside in the rain whenever he was given the chance. Out there, on the avenue's main drag, Grey would create collapsing worlds, play the parts of powerful heroes or sinister villains that could grab and catapult fire, or hang on the wall that separated the main drag from the descending basement steps that led down to Grison's front door, and pretend that none of the ground was safe, 
and that the lava levels were slowly rising. He supposed his arms were getting stronger the more he played that particular game. As the years went by, and as the kid's imagination developed, Gray began to challenge himself a little more. It happened by accident when he thought about it. On the first of many nights when he had played what he thought was a joke on his mother Wendy, when a friend he had made, an imaginary one, he supposed, had suggested to him in a whispered voice that he put a certain thing from the medicine cabinet in her soup that was to be her dinner that very night. Something that would either put her to sleep or cause her to spend the entire night in the bathroom. Gryson chose the bathroom on account of the bruises that she had given him when he came home from school that day. One on his forearm that wasn't too bad, and one on his leg, which hurt the most. Rick had received an elbow in the chest when attempting to prevent Wendy from delivering the second blow to their son. Regardless, one thing Gray knew about his mother was that, after a good thrashing, the first thing she became after the fog cleared was hungry. And so, in the chilly interlude of dusty silence that often tends to follow a domestic at Gryson's house, he seized his opportunity. Gray said he'd have some cereal before bed, but would do without dinner. Luckily, his father had already set aside some leftover pasta for the two of them, that they both knew Wendy hated. And so, it was a simple matter of sprinkling and waiting. When the sickness started, Gryson had felt a brief moment of fear. Not for his mother's well-being, for there would be no lasting damage whatsoever, but because of the look in her eyes when the nausea kicked in. A look on her thin, porcelain-white, prematurely lined face that seemed to say, I know what you did, child. You think you're the only one in this house that your imaginary friend hangs out with? How self-centered are you? This moment had frightened Gryson to his core, and so he had stampeded his way out of the front door, in much the same way he assumed that his mother was stampeding to the bathroom before he realized that he had left his shoes on the other side of the entranceway. Given the circumstances, he decided to take his chances barefoot, and for the first time stepped onto the pitted stone pathway of the avenue's main drag without the aid of footwear. This experience was a painful one, but unlike his mother's violent advances, this was pain that he could control either by concentrating weight on certain parts of his feet, hanging off the wall or patio fence, or by balancing himself upon the stones as steadily and as calmly as he could, and using the power of his mind. There was a thunderstorm that night, and Gray did not come in. He just stood outside, in his X-wing t-shirt and pale blue denims, resting as much of his weight as he could against the bright hot pyroclasts, simply feeling the world on his skin. That pattern of behavior became a running theme whenever Wendy would hurt Gryson, and it continued until Wendy got her revenge. Gryson would never attack, only counter or retaliate out of understandable fury, but he never actually went through the motions of doing anything that would cause any actual damage to his mother's body or mind. When he was younger, he would even tell her about dreams he would have of her having small accidents. Accidents anyone would have, like a burn while cooking dinner, or maybe a paper cut or perhaps a burst pen at the bottom of her handbag. What became alarming was the stark contextual accuracy that these accidents or mishaps would ultimately possess. Accidents that Gryson hadn't even been present for and couldn't have any way of knowing about. Accidents that hadn't even occurred at home and, in many cases, hadn't yet occurred at all. And so, these warnings, benevolent as they were intended on Gryson's part, ended up having the opposite effect on his mother, causing nothing other than an increasing sense of paranoia. The stranger thing was that his imaginary friend hadn't even had a hand in these accurate premonitions. Images of these small inconveniences would just come to him in dreams, sometimes even when he was awake. It was weird how he could do things like that. He had a way of knowing who was coming to visit even if they hadn't called ahead. He may even know why they were visiting. This ability of Gryson's fascinated his father no end, not least because he spent his days teaching philosophy and biology at a nearby school. This fascination, however, was a constant grinding source of irritation for Wendy, who begrudgingly cooked the lunches at Gryson's primary school situated close by, and who herself had no time for any kind of clairvoyance nonsense. It scared her more than anything. It drove her to drink, Gryson thought, caused her to periodically miss work due to knock down, drag out fights she would have with her husband over the well-being of their son. This began to give him more space at school, at least physically. There had been talk of Wendy taking some time off, spend time recuperating, maybe switch schools, or perhaps a new job. Talk of Gryson finally being allowed to go to after-school clubs. 
he was approaching double figures and actually starting to make some friends. His classmates had even started calling him the Little Grey Wolf after he had showcased to them all the barefoot pain control tricks he had learned, becoming so good at them that he would often play tag in the playground without shoes or socks, much to the dismay of his teachers. Also, Wolf was in fact his surname. This newfound freedom and popularity, however, ended up utterly blinding him from what came next. Gryson had dreamt about it the night before it happened, but had dismissed the incident as a nightmare. Technically, he had dreamed about far more grotesque things than his mother's revenge in the past. Dreams about things that he hadn't actually met in real life, at least not yet. The sharp-toothed monsters that made their homes amongst his little grey terrors. And so it was conceivable that his mother's insult and further injury was just a trick his mind was playing on him. Surely, his mother wouldn't call him something as cold and as heartless as an abomination grip his school shirt so forcefully she tore it with her jagged nails and push him hard down the descending steps, causing Grey to clatter to the ground unconscious and bleeding outside his own front door. Surely not. Well, he still hadn't regained consciousness, at least as far as he could tell. Right now, Grisenwolf didn't even know where he was, if he even was anywhere. He just kept reliving the dream on a loop, the surrounding avenue becoming darker each time. The sun sets no longer inspiring, that positive kind of awe. This time around, it seemed that the little grey wolf had come back to himself before the warped three-tined fork in the road, spawning out of the ground and rising there, covered in dirt and dust. Ahead of him lay three differing paths. To his left, up the long, steep hill towards the nursing home. To his right, a descending stairway of stone that gave way to the main road. Straight ahead of him, a jagged, uneven, and ultimately unforgiving gravel pathway. An unfinished road peppered with litter, dead mice, broken glass, and hungry pigeons. This path was the most direct route to escape. But, like the first time, no matter what he did, Gryson couldn't stop himself from turning and seeing his mother waiting at the top of the steps beyond the cast iron gate, leaning against the midnight blue fence. She was holding out her hand, and wearing a smile that didn't fool Gryson one iota. And yet, he couldn't stop himself. He could not stop himself from entering through the gate in the slow and rough way it demanded, and taking her hand, even though he didn't want to, even though he knew where it would lead. All he could do was watch himself be pushed, be forced to fall, over and over again. The worst thing Gryson had remarked, several times now, was the fact that he didn't even know where his father was. Two. The Disloyal Infirmary. Have you ever got lost inside a hospital, listeners? I know I have. Hospitals are places we all tend to find ourselves in at one time or another, and as a patient or indeed a visitor, they do not ever tend to be places we enjoy spending our time. As such, people attending outpatient appointments or visiting loved ones tend to head straight for the appropriate ward or department, do what they need to do, and then go away again, often using a route usually dictated to them by a member of staff. There could be so many twists and turns on those journeys, and if you take the wrong one and can't find assistance, you could be lost in there for a while. Being an inpatient, however, means that you have far less control over what happens to you in there, where you get taken, or who you get taken to, especially if you were wounded and unconscious. There were vague moments and other unknown stretches of time over the following days where Gryson was able to discern certain sentences or conversational snippets, possibly pertaining to him and his treatment, or just flat out unrelated. This is gonna be fun. Oh, there he was, and here he is. This isn't gonna work. It's too early. He's not ready. You know he's not. I know I'm not. 
The boss man says there's someone searching his past for his present. If we don't do this now, the mission may be compromised. The resilience is remarkable, isn't it? And these results are accounting for the changes? Yes, sir. The fluctuations are intact, and yet all personal anchor points remain constant. The scars will never find him. Don't be so sure, Dr. Bellamy. From what I hear, they punched out another hole. It may not be the smiling one that we're expecting. Sir, I'd still like to suggest that we- I know what you're going to say, Doctor. But you fail to understand the danger of interfering with fixed points. So you're just gonna let him go? If it comes to it, of course I will. But not without a fight. It would be prudent to test him at his earlier stages. To see what he's capable of. In that case, I'll post a few disposables in the connecting corridor. Anything beyond that would draw attention from the outer hallways. Cannon fodder. I like it. Make sure to capture some footage, yeah? Will be good ammunition for the investors. Yes, sir. But... But what? Voice your concerns, good doctor. Are you sure you know what you'd be setting loose if... I know perfectly well. Besides, this is only a checkup. Mere orientation. He's still in the experiential phase. Once the fluctuations begin to come into play, then we make our next move. For now, prepare a holding cell. Get the girls to stitch him up and contact the beholder. We shall need to massage the contextual accuracy. As you wish, sir. And activate his amelioration factor while you're at it. It'll save time on future visits. And remember, be discreet. This is not an Akatanian hospital. Luckily, the holding cell is cut off from the rest of the building. You, however, are in charge of the equipment. If I see any stray spider needles or any other kinds of nanotech wandering the halls of this 20th century NHS building, I am holding you personally responsible. Remember that. I will, sir. Do you think you can hear us? Perhaps. However, right now, I expect he's dreaming of his mother. There was a near-distant hum on the left-hand side of his head. A buzzing that tickled his ear canal, like a loose strand of hair. Gryson tried to move, and had that instant-specific flash of disgust you get when the reality of nightmare sweat awakens to your senses, as if your entire body is trapped inside a diving shoe. Gray lay his head still for a further moment, his eyes still closed. He could hear movement around him, the murmuring and whispering of three or more voices, and an electronic beeping sound that seemed to decrease and increase in proximity. Gryson recognized the softness of the whispers as adults attempting to have important conversations in the presence of a sleeping child. Gryson heard lots of words he didn't understand, but he did catch what he thought was his name. Suddenly he was overcome with a feeling of relief. A hospital. He must be at the hospital. The sick kids, as he had often heard it called. Plenty of his friends went there when they were really sick. Gray himself remembered being admitted for a day or two with breathing problems a couple of years previously. Maybe then, Gray had been wrong about his mother's intentions. Perhaps he had misheard her, and he had actually tripped and fallen down the stairs. Maybe that was why she had grabbed him roughly by the shirt, to stop him from falling. But can you really mishear the word abomination? Gray didn't think so. Then he thought about his dad. Maybe he had been the one to rush Gryson to safety. But what would keep him safe from her? This was the thought that cleared the sleep dust clogging up his synapses and caused his eyes to shoot open. He craned his neck to look. Gray had been so caught up in identifying his surroundings that he hadn't thought to focus on the fact that he was unable to properly move his arms or legs. And there was something across his chest and knees holding him down. Gryson wiggled his fingers and toes and squared his shoulders, checking for breaks, sprains, or any pain that his brain might not yet be conscious of. But there was nothing. That confused him. Thanks to his repeating dream, he remembered in vivid detail every clash, clatter, and scrape he had experienced on his descending journey. Stone was unforgiving at the best of times, 
but hitting the bottom when you still had five steps left to traverse. That had to hurt. And yet it seemed it did not. Gray's vision was still slightly blurred, but he could tell that the light in the room was low, at least it was on his side, compared to his far left and diagonally across from him. The blurriness in his vision caused the rays of light to expand and contract in ways that were making him tired. A sleepy tear escaped his left eye, giving into contextual gravity and running across his left temple, gliding past his sideburns and ultimately resting on the lobe of his left ear, tickling it as it dried. Tracking this feeling also made him feel tired. He turned his head away from the lights, trying to work out what was above him, or rather straight ahead of him as he was not able to sit upright. The space above him was pitch dark, so dark that Gryson briefly wondered if he was staring at the night sky. Unbidden, an image of his father entered his mind. With his tousled, slightly disheveled and unkempt hair, his optimistic yet fearful green eyes, his graying stubble that he maintained at a few days of growth, giving him that washed-out rock star look that Grey knew his mother had always appreciated, in her own way. What Grey couldn't stop were the images that followed, ones that had also haunted his most recent dreams. Flashes of his father dismembered and blind, blood oozing out of his every pore, his hair matted as if his head had been smashed in several times over. Images that Grey often feared would come to pass, if his mother really could have her way. And now, with Grey out of the picture, his dad was more vulnerable than ever. Slowly, yet firmly, Gryson began to struggle underneath his bonds. They wouldn't budge, but his vision was returning to normal, the blurry surroundings finally rushing into focus. The whispered voices had ceased. Gray didn't know exactly when they had ceased, but they had. He was alone. The room he was in was massive. He had assumed that he would, at the very least, be in a ward with other kids. At the very most, depending on the severity of his injuries, he would be in a room of his own. It appeared, however, as if he had been placed in a room that matched the size of a ward, and he was the only occupant. There were no other beds around. The bed he was in was also far bigger than the one he was used to waking up in. It looked more like a table than a bed, and was about as comfortable. To his right, Gryson could see a dimly lit, bare white wall, and on his far side, at Gryson's two o'clock, a large metal door with no handles. It had a small window on its upper half that Gryson could see nothing through, and what looked like a panel with a coded lock. The wall on his left-hand side was made of metal, and seemed to be used as a storage unit for all the varying bits of sinister-looking technology that all seemed to be intrinsically connected to the blinking red and green lights. Straight ahead of him, Gryson could see the wall at 12 o'clock. One that he had to crane his neck even harder to see was not exactly a wall. It was a giant mirror. Gray hadn't initially noticed it, thanks to a slightly obstructed perspective, but it was indeed a mirror. Gryson rested his head back down, breathing deeply and slowly. Everything around him was reminding him of the future, a world where every room and every place everywhere had blinking lights that were all attending to differing purposes. Like he was on the set of an episode of Star Trek, a show he avidly watched with his father. Had he been abducted by aliens? This thought excited him for a few seconds, then filled him with dread. What would they do to him? What, in fact, had they done to him? He wasn't in any pain, but he should be. He should feel, if not pain, perhaps a sizable amount of grogginess from whatever drug was keeping the pain at bay. He should feel weak, exhausted, uncomfortable. But he didn't, and if the fall he took really was the result of being pushed by his mother, then why the heck was he the one that was tied up? That was when Gryson heard the voice. A voice that chilled him to the bone. How you doing, Doc? The voice said. It was coming from all around him, vibrating the room and causing the table to shake. Hello? Gray said, his voice cracking slightly. Who's there? Can you help me? I'm not sure I'm in the right place. He was attempting to keep his voice firm, yet unconcerned, casual. But there was something about this man's voice that frightened him. And four words, his first four words, had been all that it had taken. The name Doc, a name that no one called him, seemed regardless to spark up some feeling in his chest that traveled down to his arms to the tips of his fingers, and made the corners of his mouth twitch into an unsettling smile. 
the feeling changed the tone of his voice, so that his next words came out in a much more jovial fashion than Gryson himself had intended. He even sounded as if he was giggling at the punchline of a bad joke. <laughs> I don't know where I am. Gryson trilled. Trust me, dear boy, the voice said, as the large vacant space above his head began to flicker. You'll get used to that. The sparks of light in the gloom above him were brief, periodical, no discernible pattern, but they gave Gryson intermittent glimpses of multiple moving things in the darkness. Multiple creatures, perhaps, as if the entire ceiling was covered in clambering, scampering bugs. A thought that made Gryson's twitching smile completely disappear. He began to feel very cold. Now then, the voice said, making Gryson jump, his fear rising in ways that felt strangely familiar, and that only scared him more. Let's have a look at you, shall we? The darkness above him began to clear as the light sourced from the upper echelons of the four surrounding walls revealed themselves. Gryson screamed. The funny thing about darkness and shadows is that they tend to intrinsically play tricks on the mind. Darkness can convince you that something innocent is something sinister, like mistaking the shadow of your vacuum cleaner for the thin, gangly form of a scrawny invader. Only seconds earlier, the sparks of light had shown Gryson glimpses of what he had thought were bugs, billions of wriggling legs all piled on top of each other. The image of what that might look like when the lights came up was enough to make him sweat coldly. It would not, however, Gryson was sure, be enough to break his resolve and make him scream. The little grey wolf had seen and experienced far worse than a bug-infested ceiling in his dreams. No. What made him scream was what the cold light of reality replaced those wriggling legs with. Hundreds, perhaps thousands, of darting human eyes. At least they looked human. They were stacked up against each other in a big clump across the entire surface area of the ceiling, all blinking at different intervals, periodically revealing differing colors. The skin around the lids was a damaged brown. The eyes were all apparently focusing on, glancing at, or completely passing over things in the room below them. Some of them were looking right at him. Others were scanning him up and down from right to left and vice versa. The shapes of the tension around certain lids seemed to indicate differing opinions of Gryson across the ceiling. The ceiling corners at Gryson's ten and eight o'clock glared venomously, while the ceiling's midsection and the other two corners seemed to be mostly focused on the large metal door, as if they were expecting a visitor. Look at them, the voice said. The three words shockwaved around the room, silencing Gryson's screams in their tracks and simultaneously snapping all of the eyes, every single one towards him. Gryson couldn't help but stare as the ceiling stared back, the eyes now blinking with an unsettling and somewhat begrudging synchronicity. It was as if they were under the voice's temporary control, but did not belong to it. The strange, wet, syrupy sound of that many eyes blinking all at once made the little grey wolf shiver beneath his bonds. The table he was lying on began to rise, the eyes growing closer and closer with each passing second. Look into the eyes of the beholder and let them show you the truth. What truth? Gryson stammered. That your mother was wrong. You are not an abomination. You are so much more than that. Let me show you. In the next second, the gazing gaggle began to swivel left, then right, then back again, forcing Gryson to follow their increasing speed with his own eyes. The pace increased from gradual to almost rapid, and Gryson wasn't even sure at what point he had relinquished conscious control. He could feel his eyes moving from side to side so fast he thought they might start hovering above his head with the sheer momentum, yet he could not regain enough control over his lids to close them over. All he could do was witness the fuzz created by the rapid movement convert itself into specific, moving, flashing images carefully contextualized by the unsettling voice. If Gryson could have remarked 
on the emotional significance of the phrase, less is more, while experiencing what he experienced over the following hour, he felt for sure that he would have. In reality, all he could do was watch and process as his two eyes moved rapidly below the beholder's many. It was strange, the formula with which these images were presented. They seemed to exist as reference points to exemplify the various statements made by the voice, and then the examples themselves would take over and advance to their varying conclusions, possessing muffled intermittent sound. To Grison, the images looked similar to how he remembered things, how, he supposed, a lot of people remembered things. Disjointed, topsy-turvy, compressed pieces of memory tissue helpfully, but no less deliberately knitted together by prompting phrases, tastes, smells, and of course, faces. The more slightly unsettling fact of some of these memories being ones he was yet to receive was not a fact that was lost on the nine-year-old boy. But there was nothing he could do. There was nothing he could say. All he could do was watch and listen. Three. The Reckoning. The pre-dawn darkness was as thick and almost as prevalent as their cuts, scrapes, and bruises. Together they limped, or rather walked with a fashion of partiality that seemed to stem from a collective desire not to shed light on physical pain. They made their way due south through Edinburgh's dirty, rain-swept streets, taking care and the occasional liberty to go unnoticed by early risers. The air was acrid with November mist and an eerie sense of tranquility. The injured pair mused on the fact that the physical damage they had sustained over the last couple of interminably long hours was superficial, about as temporary as the darkness and mist surrounding them. With time, their injuries would heal, just as the sun too would rise. Though the sun rose much faster for Grison, where healing was concerned, and that was without the use of magic. Though, the factor of his enhanced healing capabilities was just one of the many things Grison now knew about himself. He couldn't quite reason it all out into full paragraphs for Jamie Mortimer's benefit, just loosely connected sentences and peculiar actions. Like, for example, Grison's decision to take a casual walk in the direction of home in the pouring rain, clad still in his blood-stained hospital jumpsuit without any sense of urgency or even sadness or rage. Jamie, of course, questioned this, given what she knew about the manner in which Grison's father met his end. She suggested stealing a car, or even calling a cab and glimmering their outfits to look a little less bloodthirsty, but Grison had just shaken his head and continued walking. When Jamie questioned him further, suggesting a possible alternative perspective from which the beholder's visions could be interpreted, Grison didn't even turn around. But he did say something that cut Jamie's words off for a while. If I really believed there was a chance we could save him, do you really think I would be walking right now? He's been dead for over 48 hours. He's not coming back. Not even you can make that happen. This sent a spear of guilt stabbing right through Jamie's still beating heart. It focused her mind on the selfish role she had played in Grison's pain his original pain, but it also turned her attention back to me, turned her attention to the decision I had demanded that she make, and finally to my sudden, complete, and ultimately convenient current absence. Sure could have used your help. Jamie spat inwardly, the images of her most recent battles fresh in her mind. Jamie Mortimer had arrived too late. Whatever the eyes of the beholder had wanted to show him, they had succeeded in doing so. It wasn't as if they had only succeeded for a second either. Oh no. Grison, it transpired, had been strapped under that thing and held in that REM state for over 66 minutes. Jamie only had some idea of what that could mean. Initially, she had been distracted by the unintentionally dramatic entrance created for her by her mirror mistress, perhaps unwittingly given the damage to the sandstone conduit on her side, damage somehow inflicted by Shaira. Jamie had expected, or rather hoped, that the mistress would perhaps toss her through the mirror of a nearby hallway, office, or bathroom, so she might get the bearings of the strange hospital and quietly infiltrate her way into the holding cell. Maybe kill the power to the building so she could incapacitate enemies in comfortable darkness. 
but none of that ended up being possible. The mistress, it turned out, had provided a route so direct that Jamie had found herself exploding through the mirrored wall of Grison's holding cell, sending bodies, tables, equipment, and a whole lot of glass flying in all directions. There were two other people in the room with Grison. By that point, it seemed, the boy's interview with the beholder had already taken place. It was over, and he had been granted the freedom to both blink and to sit upright. This did mean that Jamie's entrance did not end up severing Gray's psychic link with the eyes of the beholder in a destructive manner. According to Grison, such a thing could be, and almost always was, fatal. Furthermore, Grison having the ability and upper body freedom to close and cover his face and eyes really came into its own. Jamie was luckily able to immobilize the glass, or at least slow it down as she burst into the holding cell. Another trick she supposed she'd picked up from the mistress. It ensured Grison's safety, at least temporarily. The shockwave of the sudden entrance seemed to floor the two other adult-sized people in the room. It gave Jamie time to release Gray's lower bonds and shouted him to get under the table. To Jamie, Grison appeared unsettlingly calm when he did this, apparently unruffled by the chaos unfolding around him. The boy just sat there, hugging his knees, more in anticipation than fear. This worried Jamie, but she decided it was better than him being hysterical. She was in the process of repositioning the small quantity of glass shards that she still had command of, directing the mental control to her hands and using them to redirect the shards into an offensive arch shape above her head. That done, she surveyed her surroundings, taking in the dimensions of the holding cell and breathing in its medicinal atmosphere, using an incantation. It smelled like smoking bone and rotting citrus. The two adult-sized occupants slowly rose from where the shockwave had sent them. The one to Jamie's right, now surreptitiously balancing her behind on the edge of the table, was wearing a nurse's uniform. There was a large chunk of broken mirror protruding from her shoulder. The blood was spurting from it unevenly. And it was not red. The nurse cocked her head to look at herself in the broken mirror, used her good arm to clear away a few strands of silver hairs from in front of her piercing red eyes, and began cracking an unsettling smile. Much prefer my natural look, she said. She commenced the gentle but apparently painless process of removing the glass. Incarnevenci mururan. Jamie's eyes darted left, being so distracted by the nurse's vanity that she failed to notice the far more threatening hazmat-clad figure close the gap between himself and Jamie and grab her roughly by the throat lifting her up as the pressure increased. The problem wasn't the fact that Jamie's air supply was severed, for Jamie did not really require one, but the pure strength of the brutish figure, the sheer mass of him, was nonetheless difficult to contend with, more difficult than she would have liked, as she found it impossible to get free of his grip. The only sound in the room was that of humanoid feet crunching across broken glass. Jamie stole a quick glance in the nurse's direction, finding her much closer than she had been seconds earlier, brandishing the piece of broken mirror in her newly wounded hand. Why don't we carve out her heart? The nurse said, giggling like a schoolgirl as she raised her arm. The smile on her face was one of hunger. Jamie was unable to see what Hazmat looked like under his suit. Even his visor was tinted, but she did think that she could make out some kind of exoskeletal structure protruding from his shoulders and elbows. It seemed there were no humans present in this room. That was when Jamie remembered the shards of glass still floating above her head. Her head, and now also Hazmat's head. She still had her hands free. The nurse was only inches, perhaps even centimeters away, when it happened. A vile, outward explosion. One that forced its way through the nurse's chest, exposing her ribcage. The syrupy purple matter seemed almost corrosive against the skin and was certainly thick enough to blind Hazmat's visor, giving Jamie the millisecond she needed to aim and fire the shards full force into the top of Hazmat's skull. The attackers hit the ground with a wet, thumping sound that seemed to echo around the large room. Hazmat had fallen clumsily backwards, pressing his hand briefly against the worst of the wounds, before it fell away and he clattered to the floor. The nurse's descent had initially appeared far more delicate, the stance she was in was almost too reminiscent of how Jamie had imagined herself in her dreams. The one she had had right before waking up to a rather genie-shaped problem. 
the sound of the nurse hitting the floor was blunt and rather final. Gryson was looking down at the still-beating heart in his hand. He seemed to study it studiously before looking up at Jamie. They locked eyes properly for the first time and stared into each other for a few further seconds. The spell seemed to be broken when the terrible smacking sound of the heart hitting the floor erupted in both of their ears. Following that, Gryson took a deep breath, wiping his hand. When he spoke, his words were firm and cold, making Jamie feel like she actually needed to breathe. You're late, Gryson had said. The eye contact broken, Jamie turned her head away in shame. Gryson followed her gaze, meeting her eyes again at the ruined mirrored wall a few meters away. She saw him there, looking at her through the shattered seams. Or rather, she saw Gryson's reflection looking at her own, but Gryson's reflection didn't match the boy standing before her. Gray's reflection, or rather, Jamie supposed his mirror master, appeared to have had a growth spurt, his features and fashion sense matching that of Gryson's future self. His smile was wide and gleaming silver. The mirror master spoke Gray's next words for him, as if apologizing for his bluntness, in the sort of way a parent apologizes for a child that hasn't learned proper manners. Although, it is nice to finally meet you. <laughs> Four. Fixed points of fluctuation. I was waiting for them on the avenue's patio when they returned. The reception was justifiably cold on Jamie's part, but Gryson seemed unsurprised. He nodded at me, flashing a half-smile that I knew it wasn't easy for him to muster, despite his newfound strength. Gryson knew what had to happen next, and so did Jamie. She wanted to protest, but knew there would be nothing gained. It would just make things more painful than they needed to be. She's waiting for you, I said, gesturing at number 60's entranceway. I know, Gryson said, sounding far, far older than he looked. I'll make it quick this time. We'll be waiting for you when you come out, Jamie said, softening her voice. Gryson nodded, then said, It didn't work, did it? You couldn't get a window. I shook my head. The 2020 anachronism is still blocking access to the causal nexus. Until I... Ow! We find a way to revert it. There's no way I can get to your father. I'm sorry. Jamie frowned. She thought she might be beginning to understand, but remained silent. It's not your fault, uncle, Gray said, as he made his way down the basement steps. I don't blame you. I just blame time. He smiled another half-smile, and then disappeared from view. Four knocks, and a pause. Then the telltale sound of an opening door. You and me both, kid. What happens to him now? Jamie asked, drawing gratefully on a cigarette. We happen. We can't just leave him here. I never have. You've saying you've done this before. Isn't that obvious? So, how did it happen the first time? The first ever time? Everything happened as it's supposed to happen, dear. The only change I could make this time around was providing him a little company. You. So, the first time he was on his own? He fought his way out of the holding cell and made it home all alone. I nodded. Sure. And then he came home and murdered his horrible mother for murdering his wonderful father. That's when I originally got the alert and stepped in before he was taken away to a padded cell. Then, after he went into training on Acatania at the age of 17, a predetermined path, one not determined by me, and one that even I did not have the power to overrule. I lost track of him. Then, a little while later... How long? About 13 years. Christ. 
Oh, shut up, dear. Aquitanian military factions are so far off the radar that they don't even need to know what the word means. Though, of course, they do. Continue. I came across an alert warning nearby planets and spaceports of dangerous defectors from the Aquitanian military. I didn't have to dig too deep to find Grison's name. There was him and a couple of others who I'd come into contact with over the years Grey was living with me. Then, before I knew it, 2017 rolled around, and the Dark Pale Death swallowed up the US. The Dark Pale Crisis. I spent a while comparing and analyzing the convergences. It took a long time, but I realized that Grey's defection took place not long before the Dark Pale Death's release. I found him in DC, out on the front line with some friends of his, the other defectors, and a couple of new recruits. He made me proud, but too much damage had been done, and Galen got what he wanted. And what did he want? To lift Earth's curtain for a standing ovation. Earth's curtain? Intelligent planets that exist in Akatania Prime's residing dimension. This one are shielded by Akatania against more advanced alien life, like an invisibility cloak that ensures that the Prime Directive, if you like, is upheld. That is, until the right time. Jamie ran her hands through her long, twisted hair, twirling and pulling at it. So, is that why the human race hasn't, at least until 2017, celebrated an official first contact with an alien species? Or fought against one? 1010 would gladly expose it again. So, what about UFO sightings and crop circles and all that other stuff? Akatanian technology is good, but it's not perfect. There are periodic holes in the shield's defenses, and it can leave imprints of itself behind. And, as you know, some humans are far more observant than others. It's just a shame that they mostly get branded as crazy. And what about Area 51? For that story, dear, you'll have to get me very drunk. Another time, then? Deal. My point is that Grey asked me for a favor when I met him in DC. To try, if I could, to break my way through the fixed point of Grey's father's death and save his life. But when you go into the Akatanian military, you end up traveling in time inherently and intrinsically, meaning that Anchor points are necessary to keep their soldiers' origins intact. Without them, the soldier, as the Akamil know and trust them, would cease to exist. Now I can squeeze my way past those anchor points, and usually, with careful massaging, edit them to work in differing but no less stable ways. Unfortunately, because Gryson is directly linked to not just one, but the outcome of two basically irreversible anachronisms in the space of three years, anachronisms that spread so far, and so wide. Breaking into the historical anchor points of those intrinsics is almost impossible. Thus, every time I try and fail, the little grey wolf has to live through this over and over again. Until I get it right. Luckily, his anchor point with the beholder makes him aware of everything I have just explained ahead of time, hence his calm and slightly lackadaisical demeanor. Jamie nodded, Surprised that she was actually following, and to some extent wrapping her head around all of this. Even so, her next question seemed too simple to her own ears. So, you raised him? For a time, he decided to leave. And then the future, as we know it now, began to run its course. Though this time, it might be different. Because... Because you are going to help me. There was a long silence while Jamie considered this. Then she looked me in the eyes and slowly nodded. I smiled. But how did you know where I was? Where I was going? Miss Mortimer, I always know where you are. And I always know where you are going. I'm serious, Regrin. I was contacted. By who? by the same being that I believe is holding my crew in the present, Grison included, somewhere out there, possibly beyond the outer regions. The Beholder wandered into my office and informed me of your recent escapade to Massachusetts. I have no doubt that he has an in with the Sandy Sentience. 
It's the best way to gather information on the people the Beholder collects. You mean the Beholder was working with my mirror mistress? Naturally. The Beholder is one of the few things out there that can make sentient sand feel beauty within itself, since it's usually used as a glass conduit for the viewing of the vanity of others. She wanted to know about Zerzero. About the ring? Did she now? That's unsettling. That's not the worst of it. Jamie took a deep breath. Shaira is back. Somehow. She's no longer dead, but she wants me to be. Can't blame her. Will you stop being so casual about this? How can she be alive? I have no idea. You really don't know? Nope. I got nothing. But there is no way that she could have found her way back on her own. Someone or something helped her. And if something that powerful is handing out help, then I think we should even the odds. Fixed points in time be damned. It's time to change the game. What do you mean? I mean that after we make sure Grison's all comfortable and settled in, we're going to the edge of the universe, to the Akatanian wastes of the end times, and bring my grandmother back from the dead. You're kidding me. I stood up as Grison's front door once again opened, preparing myself for the grotesque eyesore that was the aftermath of matricide. Jamie followed suit, clicking a flame into existence and lighting another cigarette. She passed it to me, and I took it without looking, drawing on the smoke with my eyes and ears fixed to the sight and sound of Grison's final ascending journey towards a new kind of freedom. Oh, trust me, Jamie, I said, exhaling, despising the taste but desiring it nonetheless. We're really gonna need the childcare. If you're a podcast clown like I am, you must have dreamed about starting your own. Let me tell you, my dreadful darlings, it's never easy, but it's one of the best decisions I ever made. It was either that or waste away in my own subjective ascendance. Of course, it can be more than just a little overwhelming to know how to get started. Buzzsprout can help you launch your podcast professionally and in style, linking you with all of the major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and much, much more. Join us up in the buzzing, sprouting podcast cloud to breathe in the renowned analytical sound of the accurate analysis and promotion tools provided. Follow the link in the show notes below to start your journey and receive a $20 Amazon gift card. We're waiting for you. Buzzsprout, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast.